If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of Matthew, we will continue our study through this gospel as we consider this most terrible chapter of the scriptures, as some have put it, with the indictment of the Pharisees with these woes. We will continue where we left off last Lord's Day, beginning at verse 16. Now hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we gather here this day, hearing these thunderous woes that our Lord spoke in the hearing of the nation of Israel, but directed specifically, primarily, to the leaders of that time. We pray that you would open up our ears and our hearts, that we would be attentive to the message that God would have for us today from this passage We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth, for your word is truth. You would square us up with the truth. And may the plumb line of your word run through our hearts and bring us into square. Lord, we ask that the Spirit would be poured out now, and through the Spirit we ask that the preaching would go forth with power to bring forth the fruit that would please you, and that you would be glorified in this time together as we give you our worship in the preaching and the attentive hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I thought through and prepared the message of this past week and praying for the message itself, this long forgotten song from my youth came back to mind from 1979, Billy Joel, which I normally don't quote, wrote a song whose title was named Honesty. It was released and the lyrics go, begin at least like this. If you search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find. You can have the love that you need to live. But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems so hard to give. And then the refrain which catches the the memory more than anything, honesty is such a lonely word, everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard, and mostly what I need from you. Well, that song sums up the truth of the culture of this fallen world. Dishonesty is a characteristic truth of the fallen world in which we live. But it is not the characteristic truth of those in Christ's kingdom. We come out of that world and kingdom of lies, but we are put into a kingdom of truth. And that which is true. This chapter that we began a couple of weeks ago has strong indictments for the leaders of Israel. And we are beginning in a section that has eight woes. You might remember a woe has included in it a sense of sorrow and even disaster. But secondly, it has a sense of divine judgment, a sentence a verdict that is being passed by God. And so can you think about uh, the Lord Himself breathing out these woes upon the leaders 
Now, a divine sentence, as though it was not going, going to be reversed, and it was already finalized at this point, that great disaster will come upon these leaders for the very things that he's calling them out to. They had plenty of opportunity to repent. They had plenty of opportunity to acknowledge Christ as the Son of God, the coming Messiah, of which they continued to spurn Him and seek how to destroy Him, and they would soon hand Him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified upon the cross, call for that crucifixion, affirm it and confirm it in all of their spirit. The main issue that Jesus is confronting in this chapter is hypocrisy, hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel. Now, hypocrisy is not mere inconsistency between what they believed is right and how they practiced their lives. We all have inconsistencies in this way, but hypocrisy has the element of deception inherent with their practice that willfully contradicted what they taught. And while the Lord is condemning their hypocrisy with these eight lightning strikes of thundering woes and judgments, there is a lot of illumination in the sky for us here to see today. Because we can see where the heart of God is, we can see what He loves, we can see what He hates, we can understand how these characteristics relate to the direct nature of that He is and His kingdom of which we are. So our Lord now moves from the condemnation and the woes that we covered last Lord's Day, the Pharisees of their false ways that shut people out of the kingdom, and now He moves to two of their practices in two sections. The first section, which we'll cover today, and the second section, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Those two sections, basically, though, the two practices in which Jesus was calling them out on, boil down to this, that the Pharisees majored on the minors as a way of evading primary obligations. The Pharisees and the religious leaders majored on the minors as a way of evading their primary obligations. It's not just majoring on the minors here, but majoring on the minors with an intent, that is to evade primary obligations. There's a lot of things that we do sometimes that majors on the minors at the expense of the majors or the weightier things of the law, but it's the intent of the heart that then does this for a purpose of evading obligations that Jesus is here addressing. The first of those sections of the practice of this we're going to see to this morning in verses 16 through 22, and that is the neglect of the truth itself. They majored on the minors to the neglect of the truth itself. And next Lord's Day, we'll see in verses 23 through 24 that they majored on the minors to the neglect of the heart. Now, fallen humanity in this world in which we were born into and we ourselves were once children of disobedience, we have an inherent focus upon the self. And for the rest of our Christian lives, we will be outgrowing that focus of self with a a focus upon God. And as God has regenerated us, He puts Himself at the very center of our lives. And as the old man is put off by putting on the new man, it begins to change us from glory to glory to be more like the character of God. That's what it means to be godly. But fallen, unregenerate man focuses on himself. Where we struggle are still oftentimes focuses upon ourself. But fallen, unregenerate individuals have a default nature that attempts to get ahead of others at others' expense. It's a competitiveness in a bad kind of way, if you will. It likes to cheat, it's dishonest, it takes shortcuts in life, 
in order to get the desirable thing, but in a wrong kind of way. The Bible calls this dishonest gain. Fallen men seek to evade primary obligations by finding an easier path or cheating their way or And it's oftentimes at other people's expense. It's like little kids who want to go cut in the food line. Or like big kids who want to cut in the traffic line. It it all has to do with getting ahead at others' expense. And one of the ways that sinful men try to to get ahead of others is by dishonest means. It is a part of the fallen nature. It is a part of the deception that we all had when we are under the sway of the wicked one who is the father of lies and there is great deceit given to us that we are deceived and we often deceive. So in essence, fallen humanity suffers from dishonesty and I think Billy Joel's song had a lot of truth about it when he says, who can find it? And Satan is the father of lies, as we read from John chapter 8. My apologies for not putting the reference there. And that's what I want to preach to you this morning on. Honesty. Truth. Integrity. Faithfulness. These are the characteristics of God's kingdom. When we say that faith must have an object to have value... The object of faith will be truth. Christ is the truth and the way. And so truth is what is, in an essence. And yet as we come out of the kingdom of the world, and which is full of deceits and lies and misrepresentations, and falsehood, and cheating, and living non-committal, non-trustworthy, undependable lives in order to get ahead of others or take advantage of some opportunity for some self-gain or promotion. That's the world we come out of. We're going to have to know what this means to us to believe what is and embrace it, and represent it, and to be faithful. Because the world will have you to believe that it is a competitive dog-eat-dog world out there, and to get ahead, you're going to simply have to cheat. Have you ever heard that? I used to live with a bunch of sales reps who believed that in their hearts. Well, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the people who should have been embracing righteousness, lived lives of very deliberate dishonesty. They had a system of dishonesty. Now, they would not see it that way themselves. They would not appraise themselves that way. But Jesus is calling them out for their practice to show them what they really are. And you know the fruit or you know the tree by the fruit, and Jesus is showing the fruit and exposing the tree. In this section, the Lord is calling out the Pharisees, and He calls them out in this particular section for drawing deceitful distinctions between oaths. Drawing deceitful distinctions between oaths. This oath versus that oath. They had developed a system of taking an oath or a vow with no genuine intention of keeping it, and yet they were justifying themselves in the manner of doing so. The way that they did that was based on the way in which they would swear or take a vow that would allow them then not to keep that oath or vow. Think about that hard enough, and you think what a contradiction that would be. Jesus is addressing the practice of deceitful oaths, untruthful promises. An oath is a formal promise that one makes where he evokes God to be his witness. 
Sometimes Christians have a misconception about the lawfulness of oaths and vows. We covered that back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And Matthew 5 in that section is really commented on here, and these two passages go together. But as we covered in, in Matthew 5, that oftentimes Christians misunderstand and misconceive what is actually being taught there, thinking that oaths and vows of all sorts and any kind are unlawful. And it stems from a misunderstanding of the very issue that Jesus was addressing here with the Pharisees. Jesus was not condemning lawful oaths and vows, but he was condemning this perverted practice that gave license to justifying dishonesty. The oaths are not only lawful in the Scripture, they are actually sometimes commanded for us to take. Let me give you a few examples as we rehearse some of the old ground here. In Deuteronomy 6.13, we each Lord's Day come together in our matin service, and that portion of the Shema is, is quoted, and we say our amen to it. A few verses further down in verse 13, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. Now there's two categories of oaths that the Old Testament Scriptures and which the New Testament would then affirm and embrace as well. One is a mandatory kind of oath and one is a voluntary kind of oath. There are two passages, at least anyway, that require taking an oath. One of those is in Exodus 22 in verse 11. When an owner trusted livestock or, or let's say in today's time, a pet into your care. Say you're going out of town and you've got the farm and you have someone to take care of it. And, or maybe you have a pet and someone needs to take care of the pet. And something happens to the pet while you're gone under the care of your neighbor. And you're not sure exactly what happened, and there's some question about it. But there is, for that particular situation, an oath of which one is to take. In verse 11 of Exodus 22 says, Then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand out to his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. So there was a command at which in the theocracy of Israel, that an oath was commanded to settle a disagreement between covenant members of the community. The same also was extended in Numbers chapter 5. This was when a man had suspected his wife of infidelity, and he might have enough suspicion to bring accusation, or maybe he was just highly jealous and he began playing narratives in his mind whatever it is then then he would bring her to the priest and then the priest it says in numbers 519 would put her under oath and she was obligated to take this oath now see because of the inherent dishonest nature of fallen man god gave oaths and vows to bring us into a dreadful fear of him because a lawful oath and a vow evokes the name of God to be witness to what we are now about to say. And should we ever break our word, we have called God to be our witness. Outside of the context of a fallen world, oaths and vows would not be necessary. But because of our sinful nature of in our propensity to be dishonest, God gave oaths and vows to bring a greater degree of self-awareness and sobriety and fear to bear upon us to testify of the truth and to live truly. And perhaps I, as I'm thinking about it, maybe we need to qualify that a little bit. I do know that there are some relationships that are verified with oaths and vows, and covenantally speaking. But when oaths and vows are usually employed, it's because that we need to bring God into this picture 
to ensure our faithfulness. Well, we don't live in this kind of world today that has so discounted our word and we've cultivated a culture of dishonesty so that we almost expect it, not only out of the world, but sometimes even within the church. Now, what if a vow is not kept? How significant is that? This is where I think we lack the gravitas. Leviticus 19.12 says that you shall not swear by my name falsely so that you profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. When you fail to keep an oath or a vow, you profane God's name. Again, perhaps we don't have the gravity of that because the world profanes His name all the time. We go along with it. We accept it. We have become desensitized to it. In the church, we have brought the profaning of God's name into the church. So we just don't think it to be as heavy and of a heinous thing as it truly is. We don't understand how God views His name, and therefore we treat it tritely and lightly, and so therefore even oaths and vows are then going to fall into that context. But when you fail to keep an oath or a vow, you profane and blaspheme the name of God. And that is very significant. What is it that we pray for in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. That's the very first and primary place of position in which we are to pray in our prayers that Jesus taught us. See, it is for God's name's sake that he does what he does. It is for God's name's sake that anything that benefits us will happen. At least five times he reiterates this through the prophet of Ezekiel when he is ministering, Ezekiel is ministering to a very profane and disobedient people. A very proud people who have, and oftentimes like us, marginalized the name of God and have profaned his name and do not think much about it. He says five times, it is for my name's sake. Do not think it was for your sake, but for my name's sake that I saved you. I delivered you out of Exodus. I did what I did for you for my name's sake. Not because of you, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but it was for my name's sake. And now you profane my name in the midst of this heathen world. One of those examples is given to us in Ezekiel 36, 21 and 22. Hear this. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. It is through God's name that Christ keeps us. That's his prayer in John 17. O Lord, I have kept these, your disciples, in and by your name. The honoring of God's name is essential to who we are as Christians. Truth and Honoring God's name go hand in hand. They are inseparable. God has set His name above the heavens. His name is His self-revelation to us. It is His redemptive revelation to us. Why would we want to trample that? Why would we want to profane that? Why would we want to allow others to entertain us with that? Why would we want to bring that into the kingdom? God takes His name so seriously 
Because in his extension of who he is, in a self-revelation of himself, that the very third commandment is given to this very point. You are not to take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Now there's one application to that, and one of those applications is to use his name in a blasphemous manner. But another application of that has to do with the breaking of oaths and vows. If you actually read many of the historic confessions, including our own Westminster Confession, you'll find that in the keeping of the third commandment and that which is forbidden in the third commandment, a lot of that language has to do with keeping your word and lawful oaths and vows. Now here, Matthew 23, in verses 16 through 22, this is what the Lord is dealing with. The Pharisees had turned Judaism into a religion that drew deceitful distinctions between different kinds of oaths. It was a religion that practiced the saying of some vow... And saying, oh, that was nothing because I only swore by the temple. Or I only swore by the altar. So that was a non-binding vow. I mentioned in our Westminster Confession class as we go through this, this is is like when we were little kids and we would go and say something and we're trying to convince the person of our truthfulness and our worthiness while well, all the time we were acting deceitfully and we would try to convince them of our word. Oh, I won't do that again. I won't do that again. And then the person would say, oh, do you promise? Hope to die, cross your fingers, stick a needle in your eye or something like that. And then you would cross your fingers and put it behind your back and say, Yes! <laughs> And why are you crossing your fingers after you just gave them the affirmation that you would not do that again? Then they trust you that one last time, and you do it again, and they call you out and say, but I had my fingers crossed. Any of you know of variations like that when you were a kid? Do any of you kids do things like that or have heard others do it? Yeah, oh, it got crazy. Uh, let me see your hands. Okay. But my toes are crossed. We would change it, right? It's part of that fallen nature. And the Pharisees were making a system out of it within the nation of Israel. But but see, if, if one ever vowed an oath on the gold of the temple or on the gift that is on the altar, now he's obligated to keep it. So you can see how they were just parsing the words and parsing the oaths. So what they were really practicing is this. The only oath that is binding is the oath that truly binds. That's what they were practicing. Well, you say, that, that just sounds like double talk. Yes, it is. They're talking about parsing your speech, and that's what they were doing. They were parsing this down a fine line so that they could major on the minors in order to to step aside from their obligations and find loopholes out of what the life that they were supposed to be living was like. You see, an oath had to employ God's name in order to be binding. Think about this. Think about how this is coming about. For us to truly take a lawful oath, it has to be in the name of God. Now don't go and think for a moment that you can go take a non-lawful oath with the intention of not then being binding upon you and not keeping it. You're doing exactly what they're doing if that's what your intention is. But see, the Jews were very superstitious about using the name of God. Even today, you will find a Jew, he will not write out the name of God. Rather than G-O-D, he would write G-D. He leaves the vowel out. And they're very superstitious, even way back then. And so they would use substitutes for 
the name of God. And they began to, to make systems accordingly. So they would use instead things that were religious in nature that had an association with God in some form of worship. And they would give some degree of sanctity to the vow by that particular object. See, they, they did a, a, a substitute, if you will. And so they began to parse these things. And they differentiated between the temple and then the gold of the temple. They differentiated between the altar and the gift that was upon the altar. Now, if you made a vow by the temple or the altar, it's, it's, it's minor. But by the gold or the gift that was upon the altar, then that's binding. You've got to keep that one. But their deceitful distinctions was intended to keep them with some options open so that they could get out of their word if they needed to. You know, today, um, there's a characteristic among our generations that historians have said when they look back upon these generations and they have to describe the characteristic of these of us, they will not be using the term commitment to describe us. Is that not true? It's, we, we don't like to commit ourselves because we want to leave all of our options open in case something better comes along. We have struggled for the life of this ministry to even have people to understand and appreciate what an RSVP is, because it always has a date on it, and it's a commitment one way or another that you can or cannot make an event. And this is not an indictment. I'm not trying to bring guilt on anybody here, but it's just showing you how we are products of our generation. And so people have a hard time committing because if something else better comes along, they want the loophole to get out of this so they can go do that. And that is an indictment upon us. Here they create an entire system where they can even promise an oath to do this and still get out of it if something better comes along. And the Lord is dealing with this. What he's doing in verses 16 and 18, he's describing what they were doing. And then verses 17 and 19, he's then answering or asking the questions that would then walk them logically through their own logic to a place where it would utterly fail. He says, what, what is more important, the, the offering and the gift that is upon the altar or the altar which sanctifies the gift? What is more important, the gold of the temple or the temple that sanctifies the gold, which gives the gold its value, its sanctity? So it's the temple and the altar that give the sanctity to the gold and to the gift, not the other way around. So by their own logic, which is self-defeating, He's reasoning with them, pointing out how illogical even their way of thinking is. Not even getting to the perverted heart of it yet, but then after he reasons with them, exposing their illogical and deceptive parsing, he's going to then correct their duplicity in verses 20 through 22. Verse 20 says, therefore, and that's what he is doing. He's drawing this to a conclusion. He's given a verdict, therefore, as a conclusion. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Everything on it. Because it is sanctified by the altar. Now, verses 21 and 22, he who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What he's saying is you can't get away from God in this. God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, and however you think about it, however you dice it or slice it or parse it, you're not going to get away from God in this matter. What he's doing is he's beginning to address the euphemisms. That's what he's doing. He's addressing euphemisms. They would substitute the name of God... Um, by using terms like heaven. They would substitute here an oath by temple. And, he's, and Jesus is saying, what's, 
You're swearing by the temple, but what about he who dwells in it? You can't get away from that. Or you swear by heaven, but he who sits on the throne in heaven, you can't get away from that. A euphemism is a substitute word or an expression that makes the same point, but it's doing it in a lighter and less offensive way. I'm just going to slow it down right here. A euphemism is a substitute word or an expression that makes the same point, but in a milder way. We don't want to swear by God, so we'll swear by the temple. Why do we swear by the temple? Because it's in connection with God, but it's a little less accountable, a little less fearsome, a little milder. And the Lord is bringing this to the logical conclusion. If swearing by the temple, you're swearing by God. You're not going to disassociate the euphemism, Jews, from that which it is associated with. If you're swearing by the altar, you are swearing by God. While they're attempting to use a milder form of language by employing euphemisms, God saw it as the same. You know where I'm going with this application. When we employ euphemisms today, while they are a milder form for the word of which they substitute, God sees them as the same. Are you tracking with me? I'm going to borderline on something I even hesitated because I don't want to blaspheme God's name, and particularly in the pulpit, but I'm afraid that some of you might not get it or understand it unless I give you some examples. Oh my gosh, and oh golly, is blasphemous. It's a milder form of that which it substitutes but it is blasphemous because of the association to which those words come and which that expression is identified with. Are you tracking with me? There's a number of those that you could just go through. I'll leave that with you to think through the grid of what the world shows on their billboards and what the world teaches you in their language and what you read in their books and what you begin to employ in a milder sense, not thinking anything of it. And I've actually had Christians argue with me over the use of euphemisms that it is nothing wrong with it. I would use this text directly to say that's not the way God sees it. Because I think it's a very point he's getting at with the Jews when they begin parsing the language in this manner. What Jesus is saying here, even in the use of euphemisms, you are invoking God when you do, you face up to the reality of the situation. You're not getting out of this, he's saying. He's bringing a correction here that when they are swearing, whether they're swearing by the temple or the altar or the gold or the gift... They are essentially swearing by God. In our society, people don't usually go around swearing by the First Baptist Church of Centerville, Tennessee. But they do swear by the Bible. You see that in court of law still, when you put your hand on the Bible, and so help me God, you swear to tell the truth all the truth and nothing but the truth. In essence, you are swearing by the God whose word it is. That's what you're doing. And when you're doing that, you're evoking God to hold you accountable for keeping your word. And in essence, what you're saying is, God, be my witness, be my judge. That's what you're doing in an oath and a vow. You're evoking God to be your witness, your accountability, and your judge. And that brings us to the primary point, because God is always a party when there's a vow. We cannot evade this with what the vow concerns. You say it concerns my gift upon the altar, 
or my giving to the church or whatever it is. And so you think that's a major thing if it pertains to the religious life or, or the church. But if it concerns something out there that's not connected with the church, that's not as major. That's a minor. And you can parse that one out. Don't, don't think about it that way. If you majored on this minor in order to evade your obligation, that's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what Jesus was condemning. The thing that is major in both of the cases is that God is evoked. He's always present to the party of our oaths and vows. He is always concerned about the truth in every realm and that men only speak the truth truly, without falsehood and without duplicity, without parsing. And no man, no matter how much he tries or to make loopholes or systems of it, can dismiss this and he can't avoid this. He, God is present in every transaction, in every situation, and in every communication because of His eternal nature and His nature is truth. And this is what always is concerning Him, or this is what He's concerned with. He's concerned with truth. Psalm 15, which we read a bit ago, behooves us to go back and think about it a little bit. I'll just mention in brief just a couple of verses there, because it begins with a question. O Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell or come to your holy hill? Question? Answer? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Goes on in verse 4, it says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Today, there is this wrong notion that good intentions are equal to execution. Well, I intended to do this. I failed in execution, but I intended it. So therefore, it's just, I'm still, it's the thought that counts, right? Now, there's a lot of times that we intend to do things, and we're not being pharisaical with it, with the intention to to abrogate our responsibility. You, you might have made a vow in all good conscience, but there are things that are now out of your control. And if you kept that vow now, uh, I would stand to lose a lot of money. And that's what verse 4 of 15 is talking about. Even when I swear to my own hurt, that's the character that will abide in God's tabernacle who will ascend up into the holy hill. So the point is here, God, God's people who abide with Him are prepared to keep their vows even to great hurt. Think about the implication of that to your own marriage vows. For better or for worse, those vows are arranged such that even in marriage, if the marriage turns out to your detriment, you vowed to keep it. For richer, for poor, for sickness and in health. I know of some marriages who one spouse became an invalid and the other spouse had such a difficulty with it, they divorced the invalid. Now a marriage that has a spouse that is an invalid will have a lot of burden and it's going to be very troubled in this life. But you swore a vow before God and evoked His presence to be your judge if you did not keep those vows. That's the kind of situation that Psalm 15 verse 4 speaks of. He who even keeps what he swears to his own hurt. And we want to be careful here because we have a few instances of persons taking vows that would be ungodly to keep, like Herod who gave his word and he had John the Baptist's head lopped off. You would never want to go to a passage like that to excuse you, however. 
There's a few cases where you might find yourself in a situation that you gave your word to someone and you're finding it very difficult to keep your word for some reasonable providence. And Proverbs 6, 1 through 5, gives you some instructions on what to do about that. You can go and you can appeal to your neighbor to be released from that obligation. And if he does, then that's a peaceable way of doing it. Now, that doesn't apply for some things like marriage. But if he says, no, I need you to keep it, then you're obligated to keep it. You can't get out of it. But oftentimes what happens in our lives, and I'm guilty of this, the words that we say come out very, very lightly, carelessly, thoughtlessly, And we get overwhelmed with the network around us. And very quickly, we can create a culture. A culture of a whole people. Not because they intend to be dishonest. But a whole subculture of people can slip into lightly giving their word about things and not fulfilling it to the extent that we become expectant that they won't keep it. And we become distrustful. It fosters an entire culture when people give their word and and don't follow through on it, that no one then really expects them to keep their word or keep those obligations. It's great if they do, but eh, it doesn't surprise me, right? That's not the kingdom righteousness. Sometimes we inadvertently overcommit ourselves in the network of providence and the things that we have going on and we're not restrained and yet we don't fulfill our word like we should. Even with good intentions and noble reasons, we might want to help someone and we say that we will, we don't follow through. Or how about when we say, oh, I'll pray for you and you never do. And the result of all this is an eating out of the integrity of the church and the family and of the people. And today, marriage vows and church vows are the two most frequently abused areas that we see. Church membership vows, we vow to love one another and to be slow to take offense. And when there is offense, be quick to resolve those offenses. And it's not in keeping with the obligation that we have vowed to when a member becomes upset and he writes a letter and just says, I'm leaving. That's wrong. These membership vows are to be taken with seriousness and gravity before the face of God and failure to take serious our commitments to our marriage, to the church, to Christ. And to take these membership vows of the church, which is the most sacred institutions of the earth, the church and the family. We cannot do that and be a people of integrity. Parents, hear this. This is something that you need to think about in training up your children. It's a quote from Samuel Johnson. Quote, accustom your children constantly to this. If a thing happened at one window and they, when relating it, say it happened at another, do not let it pass, but instantly check them. You do not know where deviation from truth will end. The little details of truthfulness are important. Christ says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And God's people, which have entered into that way, into the new kingdom of light, out of darkness, embrace the things that God embraces and live lives that we are to live truthfully, faithfully, As we think about truthfulness, let's be a true people, even to our hurt. Because when you misrepresent the truth, even in the slightest of details, it can be the work of the devil.
misrepresentation of the truth is not characteristic of our king. But live lives of integrity. Integrity, as one person said, is living true to yourself. If what you say you're going to do, do it. Be true to yourself. Keep your word. And so therefore live godly in Christ Jesus, embracing the truth. And in no way try to hedge the truth, couch the truth, misrepresent the truth, or to find a way out of the loophole of your commitments that you gave your word to do. To do so would fall into the things that Christ is addressing to the Pharisees here who made a, quite a system of this. And if we're not careful, we will do the same. May God help us. This is a very convicting passage. And it's one that I have to wrestle with myself and my own inconsistencies and my careless words. And I hope we can grow and be sanctified in this truth to be careful what we say. And when we say it, make sure we perform it. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are that you are a God that is faithful. That even when we are unfaithful, you are nonetheless faithful. And you keep your promises, and not a single one of them has fallen. You keep them to the uttermost and will fulfill all of your holy will. All that you have declared to us will come to pass. And we can see your veracity and your truthfulness in Christ our Savior and in your word that you have declared. And we pray you would square us up with this, that we might walk lives that are true and faithful to our great God and our great King, who is truth and who loves truth and has called us to be light, to speak the truth to the dark world even to speak the truth in love to one another. And we pray that you would give us the grace to be true, to have lives and to live lives of integrity, and to not take lightly the things that we say or quickly dismiss the little minors because we have found easy ways to accommodate ourselves. Lord, we pray that what we say would be meaningful, that others can trust our word. And we pray, Lord, for the grace of forgiveness for we have fallen so short of these ideals. We pray you would help us now with your grace and the gospel power in the Spirit to walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and to have our lives true to our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.